This is Anger Management. My name is Karin Pettersson. My name is Georg Dietz. And as usual, and as every week, we are two European journalists on the quest. A mission. On the quest, on a mission. Yes. Yeah, I would say on the mission. That's, that's <laughs> more or less. I think that's that's going there. I'm I'm, uh, I'm I'm glad that you're now with the program, finally. I'm uh, with the program. Yeah. Sure. What's the mission? The mission is to understand how the world is changing and if possible find the means to uh, make it more equal and inclusive and uh, uh, prosperous what do you think <laughs> i think um something like that uh, the mission is how to um reinvent the world we live in yeah with, that's what i said with, <laughs> with all means possible yeah. and that includes uh technology which um i think is interesting to look at as a, a problem but as a solution as well so this is why we sought out ethan zuckerman um i took his class you were at some of his famous lunches um he's a, a really interesting central figure i think um in the digital culture and the, the field of digital he's really, philosophy yeah he's really an important voice i think so he's um he's the head of the civic media lab at mit that's what he does here in cambridge here in cambridge um he has an interesting background because he's an activist he's very politically wants to change the world but he also has uh, very much one foot in the tech world um and started a company and uh, comes from knows the silicon valley culture from within which is important and in a way you feel that his political uh crusade even is uh, ignited by this knowledge of how technology uh, um, first of all could be liberating but it's also just very much at this moment uh stifling discourse sort of monopolizing um, people's minds in a way and and that's why it was so crucial i think to talk to him at this point after the election after yeah. the shock about the 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 bubbles or the the yeah. the, 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 cl the he was involved in the, in the media in the cloud project about a big election project that with Jochen Benkler whom we talked to mm -hmm. um analyzing the way people interact Yeah, um, but I, I, I think on a, on a larger level, perhaps it's just a very, very interesting moment in this community um, of thinkers about the Internet, especially this, this type of people who, uh, like Ethan Zuckerman, has this, comes from the left in a way, but the very libertarian uh, kind of left. And these are the people who created the Internet, and they, it was all about you know, distributing power to people who didn't have power and it, it should all be very decentralized. And, and he uh, never fails to mention that some of his good friends are some of the billionaires of Silicon right, Valley in right. a very gregarious way. And of course, what happened in the last couple of decades is that uh, everything turned the other way and now it's um, the Internet is becoming more closed and also um, it's captured by these two huge monopoly companies. So the problem has a name uh, and has a color. It's the color blue. is blue. <laughs> <laughs> and the name is Facebook. And we talked a lot about Facebook and um, how to think about the role of that company in this moment in, in the crisis for democracy in the West and the rise of populism and the election of Trump and how to push back uh, 
and if it's at all possible. And we didn't really, I don't think we quite agreed because we come from different political cultures, but that comes pretty late in the conversation, I think. But it's a theme, I think, that we'll further explore. It's something you work on um, in a longer project, but um, it's also interesting for us to get feedback from listeners um, about either thinkers that yeah. are interesting in this field or practitioners or um, even even we would even talk to politicians uh, I think yes we would about, consider um, that. that so if you find interesting people um, because tweet we're us mo because we're mo moving back to Europe this summer yeah so um, so thinkers in Europe on democracy inequality technological disruption hit us on Twitter and uh, come up with names And in the meantime, listen to this conversation with the uh, great thinker, Ethan Zuckerman. And as always, if you like the podcast, share it. Share it tweet, and rate it. And rate it. Enjoy. Please. Anger Management with Ethan Zuckerman. So we're at MIT with Ethan Zuckerman, who is the director of the Civic Media Lab. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Great to have you here. You're one of the thinkers, important thinkers about internet and journalism and democracy and you have a kind of an activist background and the take on your, the way you see the world. Uh, we have a lot to talk about. We're, we were very interested and intrigued by an article you wrote this just a few days ago mm -hmm. in The Atlantic where you suggested that uh, we need public social media. And I would like to ask about that. But first, can you just explain what is it with the big platform companies, these sure. big monopolistic companies taking over the Internet that just doesn't work? Well, first, let me start with a confession. So uh, I'm not an academic. I'm someone who started in the Internet startup world. And the successful startup that I had was called Tripod. <laughs> And the model behind that business, which ran from about 1994 through 99, was making it possible for people to publish on the Internet. And so in some ways, we were one of the first examples of this problem with centralization. Mm. When Sir Tim invented the web, the assumption was that we would all have web servers, we would put content on our web servers, and the rest of the world would look at it. And it turned out that was just much too difficult for most people to do. So having a business where you could say, hey, we'll give you a web page, come host it with us, turned out to be a fairly successful business. Um, in many ways, you can think of Facebook and Twitter as being engaged in the same game. You are hosting your photos or your videos or your little updates on Facebook And Facebook does two things. It, it acts as the publishing platform for you, and it connects you to other people's stuff published on the platform. It turns out that this is a really good monopoly business. It's very easy to invite people in. Very quickly, they end up with a lot of content they publish there, and that it's hard to leave because you would be leaving a lot of different things behind. Um, the danger of this is what it means is that Facebook, just like my company Tripod, um, has a lot of control over what you say or don't say. 
these companies really want to call themselves neutral. They want to think of themselves as platforms, not as publishers. But it's just not true. They have terms of service. That's a contract that includes these even sort of vaguer community guidelines. And what this means is that if Facebook decides that they're not comfortable with pictures of women breastfeeding, then it's going to be very hard to have that conversation on that platform. That form of hard control is pretty easy to see. What's much harder is the soft control. Hard control basically means can you get it on the platform or not. Soft control means will anyone ever see it. So let's imagine that Facebook decides that it's really excited about your baby pictures and puppies and... So that's going to happen. That's about to... Oh, yeah? Yeah, we'll go with it. Yeah. Okay. We'll go with it. So okay. we'll just address we've got, it. We've got technology in the building. There's technology in the building. Old technology in the building. Well, okay. So if we're, if we're not yeah. going to edit around it, I'll just keep going through yeah. it. But... So Facebook might decide that there's certain sorts of updates that they like more than others. Maybe they really like when you're posting about family and friends and kittens and puppies. Maybe they don't like it so much when you're getting angry and political. They could fix their algorithm so that you're seeing more of the happy stuff and less of the political stuff. In truth, it feels lately like actually you've been seeing much more of the political stuff. Mm. But we don't know. That's what's so difficult about soft control is that we don't get to audit Facebook's algorithm. So when I talk in The Atlantic about wanting public social media, I'm not talking about public radio or public television where people are going out and doing reporting on undercover issues. What I am talking about is this idea that we might have a public platform where we could host our content. Ideally, that would be distributed. It wouldn't all be on the same server. Ideally, we would have choice of what communities we went to and worked at. But most critically, we would have control over an algorithm that would sort content for us. And in the way that public media in many countries tries very, very hard to give us a diverse view of the world to help us be better citizens, it could be really interesting to have a public social media aggregator whose job it was, was to try to round out your news diet. And so if you, like me, feel like you're reading all sorts of Donald Trump is evil and destroying the world, but you're not necessarily reading very much about the French elections and how Le Pen got defeated, uh, and you're really not reading very much about Nigeria, where the president seems to be disappearing, um, that aggregator might try to rebalance your diet a little bit and give you more of those voices that you weren't otherwise hearing. So when I read your article, I was thinking about another text you wrote a couple of years back, which is kind of a, a classic text where you... It's called... Uh, the internet's original sin, I yep. think, where you talk about the uh, <clears throat> advertising and the incentives to grab people's attention, basically, as the one force that is destroying uh, this information infrastructure and that is um, creating also really bad content, uh, honestly. And I'm, I'm just wondering... Uh, because that's basically what Facebook makes money off, mm -hmm. and that's what, what they are so good at, grabbing people's attention, uh, making money from that, and 
and then it just reinforces itself. So how would a public service yeah. uh, social media be able to compete with, uh, with that kind of attention-grabbing mm-hmm. expertise? So the problem with the Internet as it is is that it basically has one business model. Mm. Um, and that one business model is display advertising. And so, or at least one at one model for content. Mm. If you're creating a new content site, the assumption is that you're going to sell part of your pages so that people can look at a display ad. And the hope is that in capturing part of your attention, um, you're going to make money off of it. It's not the only model. Subscriptions work for some people. Mm. Um, revenue from purchases can work for other people. Um, I actually don't mind um, what I would call intent-based advertising. When you go into a search engine and you say, I'm looking for someone to fix the roof on my house, and you get a roofer as a response, like that, that mm. feels better to me. Mm. But the display advertising... Um, has lots of very bad implications. It's always trying to distract you from the text. It's always trying to find out more information about you. So it puts you under surveillance in the hopes of finding more about you so it can target a slightly better ad to you. And no one likes it. Um, I always ask people, what's the last time you clicked an ad on your computer? And everyone says, I never click ads Mm. on my computer. And then I say, what's the last time you clicked an ad on your phone? And then everyone says, I did one yesterday. And then you say, was it intentional or was it by accident? And the answer was, it was by accident. They, they created some ad that I couldn't get to move away. I mean, it's an entire industry based on sort of exposing us to something that we don't like because we haven't thought about a better way to do it. The history of journalism in the U.S., at least, has been the history of businesses that have two bottom lines. One bottom line is let's make money and keep ourselves running. The other bottom line is let's serve a public need. Let's be a civic asset. Up until the 1970s, newspapers were not viewed as very good business investments. They were run by families. They were run usually at a small profit margin. And they had a very strong sense of civic duty. And in fact, they tried to separate the business part of things from the editorial part of things. In the 1970s and 1980s, people realized that actually this could be almost a monopoly on delivering localized information. They bought up newspapers, they took them public, and suddenly there was this enormous pressure to gain eyeballs at whatever cost and to have lots and lots of growth. And that's the model that extended into the Internet. And the infant, if anything, took that model and just sort of accelerated it. And so that model, which was already bringing us to producing things like USA Today, which was really more about attention than it was about high-quality journalism, um, that model has carried through and in many ways is now sort of the dominant model of the internet. Um, and, And so what I'm asking in many ways is... What's a more European approach to this? Mm. And in European countries, there's almost always a very strong public broadcaster. That public broadcaster has a different economic model than the commercial models. It's usually taxpayer or license fee supported. It has a very strong firewall 
protecting it from political influence. It has to demonstrate in most countries that it is serving a need that the commercial market isn't serving, but it doesn't necessarily have to chase the eyeballs. Mm. And what I'm suggesting, I'm not trying to ban Facebook. I'm not trying to, I'm not even trying to reproduce most of Facebook. All I'm trying to do is say, if we were to design public social media, and if we were to start from the point of view of the aggregator and say, what if we gave you diverse content from around the world? What if we gave you politically diverse content? What if we maybe took a look at what you were getting on your existing feeds and tried to offer you a broader view? Is that something that has a civic utility? And if it does have a civic utility, maybe we support it via a different bottom line, which is a civic bottom line rather than a profit-making one. Can I ask you, just listening to your to first kind of the way you describe the problems with, with Facebook as a, this um, both the place or the the role it plays in our economy and the information infrastructure and also the incentives the, mm-hmm. uh, that drives it. Um, to me, that's a very, very... Pro- the more I think about it, the more problematic I think it is. And at the same time, the suggestion you come up with, which I think is super interesting, you all... you. You are kind of defensive because you say, I'm not saying, you know, regulate Facebook. I'm not saying, I just want this small thing on the side. Why is it, why is that the the, the debate, even from people like you with your activist background and your critical take on things, why is it so, I don't know, why are the suggestions so small when the problem is so big? Well, I mean, I think (laughs) the the quick answer is I'm an American, right? And so um, having you know, gotten rid of most regulation in our country and um, decided that the free market is always right. Um, I'm worried about being arrested for heresy. Um, you know, it's been interesting to see... By whom? I, 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 well, this is... This You're is, being ironic, but... This but, is, um, this is I mean, Trump's America. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm increasingly worried. Mm-hmm. Um, look, the, the U.S. has been in a model since Reagan where we don't believe in public goods. We don't really believe in public service. If you can't support it either with the free market or with, you know, a thousand points of light of volunteer efforts, it's not worth doing. So I'm being somewhat defensive because even in the early reaction to this, I have lots of people saying, I don't want the government doing anything else with my money. Mm. You know, I don't want something that I don't want to pay for. I mean, we just decided in this country that healthcare uh, is a choice, <coughs> and that um, if you have lung cancer, it was because of your own bad decisions, and you should have not bought an iPhone. Um, so, be a little sympathetic to me for, yeah, for my, sure. my context here, right? Yes. But I'll say another reason that I'm being a little defensive on this is so we just did quite a bit of research on distributed social networks. We have a project supported by the Knight Foundation. My colleagues Chelsea Barabas and Nehan Rula and I will be releasing about a 100-page report next month looking at the rise of distributed social networks. And these are platforms like Diaspora and now Mastodon, which is a open, aggregated alternative to Twitter. Hmm. And Mastodon's really interesting. It might actually work. 
But most of these experiments so far have failed, mm. and they've failed really quite badly. It's really hard to build a social network, mm. and it's very hard to compete with existing social networks because they have billions of points of data from existing users on what works and what doesn't work. Mm. It's almost like if you're competing with Facebook and you have a thousand users, you only have a thousand people you can learn from. Mm. Whereas they've got 1.8 billion people that they can learn from, so you're already fighting a very sharp uphill battle. Distributed systems are harder to engineer than centralized systems. It's simply easier to build something on one big server than having everyone run their own environments and have them interact with one another. So, part of this is I'm just trying to be a realist. If I come in and say we're going to conquer Facebook. By building a distributed social network, and everyone's going to run their own server,、mm. and the future is the past. It's、mm. the decentralized web. Anyone knowledgeable is going to laugh at me, and and so I'm trying to figure out how to balance my vision of a world that works somewhat better than the one that we're in.、Mm. With my realism of someone you know who's worked in this field for 22 years now and kind of has a sense of what's easy and not so easy to build. So can I、um, ask you a follow up on that? Because I'm just so. What do you think? Where does the pushback then against these companies need to come? Can it come from you? you because I understand you as saying. Basically, that it can come from the U.S.、Uh, because of I don't know the values of the tech community combined with everything else, and also legislation and、yep. monop- creating a monopoly in the U.S. is not a it's not a crime. <laughs> so、uh, I guess it isn't in Europe either. But、um, so could it come from somewhere else? And how should you think as a citizen, not only of the U.S. but also?、Yep. You know, other countries.、Um, we're both Europeans, and these companies also fundamentally change, of course,、yeah. the way、um, ways of our democracies, the way of you know um, um, how our media works and journalism and all of that. How should we think then? So, so there was this theory for a while that、um, Europe could put pressure. On American companies to get them to behave more ethically and more transparently, and there have been a number of lawsuits in different European jurisdictions to try to get changes and concessions made to major internet platforms. The truth is, if if we'd followed history, we would have understood that it wasn't going to work as a strategy.、Um, so many, many, many years ago. Yahoo got sued by France because they had a Yahoo marketplace that made it possible to buy and sell Nazi memorabilia,、mm. and that was prohibited in France. And what the court ended up saying was, "Look, you have to geolocate, and if you're selling Nazi memorabilia, you can't sell it in France, and that shouldn't be all that hard for you to do." That seemed maybe like a good decision at the time, but actually, what it did was sort of undermine our strategy. We hoped that Europeans who tend to value privacy over unlimited speech 
that some of these constraints on privacy would lead to cases like the right to be forgotten and that you would then see platforms like Google or Facebook accommodating itself to a European norm. What happened instead is Facebook and Google just sort of go, eh, Europe, they're crazy. We'll follow their rules so that we can continue operating there, but we're not going to change our core underlying model. And I think for a lot of people, particularly for Europeans, the idea that Europe could be treated as just another market and, you know, in Turkey, we're not allowed to insult Ataturk. And in Thailand, we can't insult the king. Mm. And in Europe, they have this weird privacy thing, and we have to make a couple of concessions to it. But it hasn't changed the core model. Um, I would love to see people challenging that core model in the U.S., but it would require a couple of different things. The first thing it might require is regulations that actually supported export of data. I have enough relationships and enough content on Facebook that it's very hard for me to leave. But if I had a way of exporting my data and potentially bringing it onto another platform, much more likely. Second thing, it's not clear in the U.S. that you can federate data. It's not that hard for me to write a client that say lets you read your Facebook and Twitter streams together. But if you do that, you're going to get sued by Facebook. They already sued a company called PowerWeb, and that's still winding its way through the courts, essentially over whether you have the right to read Facebook through something other than a Facebook interface. If the U.S. had a strong regulatory environment, you would hope to see data export and federation as sort of precursors to new work in this space. You're not going to see it under the Trump administration. Maybe you could see it in Europe. But now my fear is that Yahoo, Google, et al., um, Facebook, would simply say, oh, those wacky Europeans, yes, will accommodate their strange decision. You know, the EU's a relevant enough market that we want to pay attention to it, but not that we would want to change our core business practices. Um, so I'm, I'm really curious about maybe the more constructive approach that you always, uh, I think, have in, in thinking about the possibilities to change either with technology or through other means than regulation. So I guess uh, that, that explanation for... I'm more for, the regulation for, type, for, type of, for a type lack of, of girl. <laughs> Um, so, so there are these four levels of change that, mm -hmm. that Lawrence Lessig sketched. Do you have, I mean, do you see your work in an educational context? So if it's the beginning of a norms change that the people have to be educated about what is happening on sure. Facebook? I, I guess that sort of it's really not clear for a lot of people what they sell, what's the right, what's the sort of, is, is it about somehow we're also in, in, in the field of control here, the helicopters uh, hovering. <laughs> hovering uh, well, 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 welcome to my world, the drilling overhead, the helicopters <laughs> coming out. They, they noted the two European journalists were meeting with me, and uh, I expect to be de debriefed it's, when it's, you leave the it's office. It's basically so. over for you now. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's uh, Brazil, somebody's coming in. Right. The, they with strange construction here, too, the... the, the, the um, The, 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 the ventilation, ventilation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yes. So, so, so the, yeah, yeah. The, the, so, the approach so, could be different. So, educate people about this. What's this? What's how does the system work? Sure. So let let, let me unpack your what's, question. What's the 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Oh, I'm Spoiler. just saying this is always the liberal solution. Let's just educate it's you. It's not the liberal. That's what do you not going to work. That, okay. Well, but but so that, that's not, it's a bad word. So that's not where I'm going to go. Okay, so, thank you. Um, so you're you're. I'm the liberal now. Yes. Yeah. She she's pro regulation. You're liberal, and I'm a defense of America. Okay. <laughs> but um, you're that's so social democratic. Okay. You're referring to a framework that that I teach a lot in my classes. It comes from Lawrence Lessig's book uh, Code. And Lessig observes that you can control behavior through at least four ways. You can make something legal or illegal, and that's one way to control behavior. You can use markets to make something cheap or expensive. You can use social norms to make something socially desirable or to make it (coughs) undesirable. And you can use code. You can use technical architectures to make things easy or difficult to do. And I always wonder about the legal because I thought it, I, in my thinking it's politics, but he says law. So, so I, but I, I would put the two together. So, right. so for me, when I say code, I often say code and architecture. Yeah. When I say law, I mean law and politics. Right. Thank you. So, um, right now in the U.S., if you are left leaning, if you're a progressive, you're not going to get very much done with law. Um, you may have noticed that our Congress isn't doing very much these days. Yes. And uh, you may have noticed that, that our president is actually quite unsuccessful at passing laws. But this is a, a, a kind of a, a long trend, actually. Yeah. Our federal government is very, very hard to get anything done in right now. Um, and the truth is, most social change in the U.S. has really been law-focused. Our social change movements in many ways come out of the civil rights movement. And the civil rights movement had enormous success in court and got a whole new set of legal protections. And so there's almost two generations of social change people in the U.S. who see law as the main lever that they can move. I think that lever is very hard to move right now. And so I'm much more interested in norms and code and markets. So. I would love to regulate our way out of this problem. I would love to have regulations that demand data portability and you know, encourage competition in the social media platform space. I don't think we're going to get them. And so my response to how we solve this would be to look at code and markets and norms. And so code might be maybe we need to produce some of these aggregators and show that they're actually quite useful in getting different perspectives. Then I would look at norms and essentially say, maybe we need to help people understand that it's not a good idea only to listen to people who agree with you. And that it's not just listening to people who have the opposite opinion, because that also isn't very helpful. What's more helpful is people who have orthogonal opinions. They're, they're in a whole other directions and dimensions that we haven't thought about. For this to actually work, it would have to find a way to be sustainable. And the big problem with my Atlantic piece is that, you know, we're not going to get public media in the U.S. to do this. So 
I will ask the two of you as Europeans, could you imagine European public media starting to take this seriously? You have outlets like Deutsche Welle, you have outlets like the BBC. These are extremely high-quality journalistic organizations that work very, very hard to serve underserved populations. Could you imagine one of those taking up this idea of diversity in digital media? Well, I thought about it when I read your piece because the discussion we have in Sweden where we always also have a very strong uh, public service um, companies both in TV and radio, uh, the discussion we have there is whether how much of their content they should uh, distribute via uh, social platforms, uh, uh, basically um, how much of of their stuff they should put on, on Facebook. And I'm personally of the opinion that they should be very careful with what they do, because um, because I also I work for a commercial newspaper, and what we see is so Facebook is killing yep. our business model, and at the same time the public service um, companies are putting all their stuff on Facebook. So it's this they just reinforcing this this model in which this, Facebook this ends model, up carving away. Yes, yeah, and that's I think problematic. But at the same time. I understand their dilemma. I, I don't think I've seen uh, your um, the equivalent of your proposal. It's a new idea to yeah. me. I think it's interesting. My question, I guess, would be again: How would you, how would you effectively compete with yeah, but these companies that are so that, sure, sure. fucking good at just you but know grabbing that, so people's yeah, attention? But isn't that an old? So I mean, that's what Airbus did. So so you, you have a European tradition of seeing that there is a American. Uh, company that's threatening to either European market or yeah, sort of, but or security because you have to have your own. But not uh, not everyone in Europe structure. is French. Well, it's not. But <laughs> if you remember, it's a French, <laughs> it's a French German corporation, yeah. Yeah, a French-led <laughs> but consortium. No, yeah. but 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 that's that's my point. So if I guess um, or the CERN, the the, the nuclear yes. uh, the, the, um, facility in, in Geneva. Yeah, but that's just research. Um, yeah, but that's just research. I'm just saying this all comes from this. Of period where Europe had right. a sense of community and, and, and purpose and direction. And I would argue and, that and, that's and, in a way like. How's that going these days? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of slow. Yeah. Macron will change everything. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. so that I think that's. I think it's. Um, and, and, and people talked about a European internet right. or, or sort of. Uh, so and, so there, was, should be, and there could was be a super a, push for Europe, I guess. There was a really interesting attempt to get. A European consortium, French-led, building a Google alternative because people realized early on that Google has immense power. And in fact, we've come come back to this again and again. There's very good research studies out there that suggest that with very subtle changes to Google's search algorithm, you can throw an election. Mm. And it doesn't have to be obvious. You don't just sort of say... Um, every result from now will be pro-Trump and anti-Hillary. All you actually have to do is make very minor modifications and you can, you can have substantial political changes. And so the response was, since we can't review Google's algorithm, in fact, under U.S. law, certain types of research on that algorithm may technically be illegal under, under the uh, really? Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. So my, huh. my friend Christian Sandvig is suing... Uh, the U.S. Department of Justice for the right to audit Facebook's algorithms over how content is sorted because he is concerned that the experiments that he wants to run would have him arrested as a felon for computer fraud despite the fact that he's a 
professor at the University of Michigan. Wow, that's crazy. Studying these systems. So, unfortunately, the problem was the French-led search engine was terrible, and and it spent quite a few billions of euros and, and got nowhere. Um, that's what I would worry about with a public uh, so, European so public is, service. But, but of, so yeah. this is why I'm trying to go small, right? Yeah. So sure. Um, my experiences with success have, have been doing something small and effective that people have liked and then watching it scale. If I could create a very simple service where you could sign up your existing social media feeds and you could talk a little bit about what you feel is missing, what you would like more information on, and we could be sort of a landing page for you on your mobile phone or on your laptop and that would be supported either the U.S. style of public media, which is we would all chip in and volunteer and, and pay small amounts of money for it, or the European style where we try it as part of the Swedish public broadcasting mm-hmm. system. This becomes a service offered by those channels. That's what I'm interested in testing out. Mm-hmm. Do we, over time, kill Facebook? Maybe. Mm-hmm. But for starters, we try to demonstrate whether people really do want diversity or not. I want to do this because it's an experiment. And so if it works, then perhaps we build something and we try to to grow from it. If it doesn't work, then we actually know we have a much bigger problem, which is that people say they want diversity, they say they want different points of view, but at least the simple solution of just giving them more points of view doesn't work. It mm-hmm. may be that they have to be presented or framed in different ways. So one way or another, as, as a university researcher, I win, right? Because yeah. I, I get <laughs> an interesting finding in either direction. If I get a good finding, then I go to the EU and ask for $4 billion to scale it up and kill Facebook. But I'd really love to know whether the idea could work before I go and try to build it at a bigger scale. I have a question about, uh, we, we had recorded a um, conversation, a podcast with your colleague uh, here at MIT, Joey Ito, yeah. uh, the other week, and we talked to him about the values of Silicon Valley, and kind of, he, his express, expression was, what are the gods that these people worship, and what is the kind of, where does these companies come from in terms of what they want to build, and what how they want to change the world, uh, or if they want to change the world, and um, could you um, do you have a do you have an opinion on, on that, or what what's your and and connected to that, mm-hmm. do you think that something happened with the election, um, with sure, the election sure, result, and sure. has that shaken these companies or shook shaken these companies? Shaken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, in in so that case, in sure. how? So so let let's look at sort of pre-2016. And I think pre-2016, the feeling of this is the fundamental doctrine of Silicon Valley in many ways is that reality can be improved and optimized. That many, many things are dumb, they're stupid, they don't work very well, and someone needs to come in and fix them. And that if you view the world from the perspective of the world needs disrupting, it needs a smart person to come in and fix it, there's enormous amounts of money to be made. So Uber comes in with almost a religious belief that taxi cabs are bad and wrong and the system's awful. 
And you know what? They're, they're partly right. Uh, the way the taxis work in the U.S. is not very good. So they've come in with a system that is, frankly, bad and awful and wrong in a whole bunch of other ways, um, and made an enormous amount of money in the process. And that's how Silicon Valley is supposed to work. Airbnb is probably a slightly less awful example of this, where they've said hotels are not a very good deal. Maybe sometimes we just want to stay on a couch or rent somebody's house. And they've caused interesting destruction in their wake as well, but perhaps not as as disruptively so. So I think the religion had been, sure, you're going to fail, move fast, break things, innovate, but find something that you don't like and try to figure out how to make it radically better. And I think you can see good extremes of this thinking and bad extremes of this thinking. Good extremes of this thinking might be some of the crazy stuff that Elon Musk and others are involved with, where they sort of said, look, we know that you can't build trains in the U.S. because we're not collectivist enough, we don't like getting on them, but what if you had a hyperloop? What if you could get from L.A. to San Francisco in half an hour? Maybe then you'd be willing to think about things really differently. And I actually think that's not a bad way to think. I think it's gotten very hard for our government to think about infrastructure if we have private companies thinking big, I'm actually sort of excited about that line of thought. Where it gets crazy is where you have people like my now friend Shane Snow, who wrote an essay essentially saying, let me disrupt prisons. And what I'm going to do is we'll put everyone in solitary confinement, we'll let them get education via Oculus Rift VR goggles, and we're not going to have meal halls anymore, we'll just serve them soylent. And so isolation cells, soylent meal replacement, and VR, and prisons fixed. And I wrote an article for The Atlantic essentially saying, how do smart people end up proposing torture? Yeah. And is this essentially where this Silicon Valley ideology takes you? If you take this sort of, the, what Evgeny Morozov calls solutionist, if you take this paradigm that everything is, is a problem worth solving through technology... Mm-hmm. How do you forget about all the other pieces within it? Has it changed since 2016? It might be changing. I don't feel like it's changed yet. But I do feel like I'm running into some of the people who are the popes of Silicon Valley who are looking at this and saying, wait a second, I think the background has changed enough that we have to be thinking about our values. Yeah, but you can't make that somehow out of thin air. You can't produce that. I, I think sort of the, the, the realization is that that's also what Joita said. So if you have people with Asperger's, sort of in, in a way, as socially inhibited people with a lack not only of understanding of social connections, but with a lack of basically any fun philosophical foundation of what society or or even life should be about. So they have this, as you say, the solutionist approach to things, which, which as you say, if, if you see, if you have a hammer, you see a nail. So, so you, even Uber is lacking, and, and Airbnb, a fundamental understanding of why they do it, apart from breaking things apart and making them work. So when, when we went the other day to this other big company with a G, Google, mm-hmm. somehow they proposed a solution for journalism that is just sort of, it seems like a solution, but it's, but it's not felt, it's not, there's no, no coherent 
logic behind that. So I'm I'm just yeah. interested in your take yeah. uh, where on, on where those ideas could come from. If if should you look at Silicon Valley again to to, to change and realize sure, sure. and then modify their beliefs, or is it sort of people like? You or or, or 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 who could be the, the the lever on the norms change to 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 supply ideas or philosophies into that uh, void. vacuum void? Yes. So, so 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 the one useful thing I got out of studying philosophy in college was that I tend to see things in terms of dialectics, and and so I'll I'll offer a personal dialectic in all of this. I started out in Silicon Valley, not actually in the Valley. I was in Western Massachusetts, but within venture-backed technology startups. So I do understand that value set reasonably well. And I think it strikes out in exactly um, where you're talking about. At a certain point, you have no idea why you're doing this. You just need know that you need to do it faster and better and more aggressively than everybody else. Um, so I was excited about my company Tripod because I thought it was very important that people be able to publish and share information with the rest of the world. And at a certain point, it turns into, can we get hundreds of millions of users? Because that's the only way that we're really going to make money. So then I found myself in the, in the nonprofit world. And specifically, I do a lot of work with George Soros and Open Society Foundation and this very large progressive human rights funder. And what's great about that world is that everything you do is worthwhile. And the bad thing about it is that you're not actually going to change things. Hmm. So you do... Why not? Because... Because the scale is so big. Yeah. So it turns out even if you are a multi-billionaire, and even if you're investing almost a billion dollars a year in social change, which is in fact what he invests, hmm. you end up doing pilots. You end up doing small-scale work. So you can look at things and say... Hey, we've done great things with deinstitutionalization in Croatia. People aren't being held in mental hospitals anymore. But it hasn't affected the rest of the Balkans. Or we've been quite successful in helping um, get marijuana legalized in a number of states in the U.S. But it's still not legal at the federal level. And it's enormously expensive. But more than that, you don't have people thinking about massive transformation. And for very good reasons. They're really reluctant to blow up systems because most of these systems have come into place to protect people. One of the reasons Uber is able to be so successful is that they can say, well, we're going to take whatever passengers we want. Maybe we're not going to particularly well serve poor neighborhoods. Maybe we're not going to go places that we think are dangerous. Taxi cabs have to do that because they're regulated on a city level to provide equal access service to everybody. So the progressive response to this is tends not to be ambitious enough. It tends not to be big enough. So here's my resolution to my dialectic. I have gone into the belly of the beast. I teach at the MIT Media Lab, a place where a huge number of master's students dream of going on either to go into Google or to create the next Google. And my job is to infect them with a certain amount of social responsibility and the ability to look at techno-social systems rather than just technical systems. And if I can affect a small number of them, I am starting to release into the wild people like Nathan Matias, who, my first doctoral student, is now literally figuring out how a company like Reddit 
could work to make its discussion spaces more inclusive, less divisive, less abusive. And, you know, while he's probably going ahead in academe, you could also easily imagine him going into one of those companies and very seriously taking on the problems of online harassment. Hmm. So my solution to this is to say, I don't think Silicon Valley is going away. Can I help bring brilliant young people who have some of those progressive values, but also haven't lost the world-changing ambition and come in with that ethical and philosophical grounding, but are also thinking about these questions of how to scale and how to work at a global scale. Can I have a follow-up question on, on that? Because I'm curious um, about this, this moment. Um, yeah, um, getting there. Um, about this moment, so the frictions in, in, in the election or in society, so as I see it, were also uh, age cohorts. So yeah. you had in the polling, it was very clear, so you had 60 plus, so they were in the polling, and the youngers were not because they're not on the phone, or so all these contradictions. Yeah. And the same is true with, with, with us, for example. Yeah. So mid 40s sitting in a room talking about the internet, you know much, much more than, than I do, but I'm, I'm, we're both, I think, very just biographical latecomers to the game so there's that explains I guess the the certain sense of, of, which I, I guess we share with a lot of our uh, com comrades in our generation the, the, the surprise and passive passivity so towards this new technology and and just being here at the MIT uh, for, for a few classes and, and 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 watching the students interact with you or with each other I'm just curious who, who are these people so is that is, um, <laughs> What do they think? Mm -hmm. uh, are they greedy? Are they con con conformist? Are they opportunist? Are they just? Are they revolutionaries in any way? Are they good? Are they bad? The hope. It, it's hard to characterize a whole university. Um, I would say that that what I'm seeing out of my students right now is a realization that they want their work to be meaningful. And meaningful can mean a lot of different things. For some students, meaningful means this is an interesting problem that I get to solve and I don't have to do dumb stuff that people have already worked on. But for any of them, meaningful means this has benefits for people beyond me. This could benefit society as a whole. Um, I see people who feel like the easiest way to benefit people at scale is through commercial mechanisms. It's through creating a program or creating an app. And that's one of the things we actually have to fight. You have to get people to step back a little bit and say, before you create the app, what is it that you're really trying to solve? Who is it that you're really trying to help? But um, I don't have the feeling that I sometimes did during university of people who just want to make a ton of money. Um, the truth is, if you want to make a ton of money, the place to go is banking, and sort of almost always has been. And that's not what the students here are doing. They do want to go to Silicon Valley, but they want to go to Silicon Valley because they see themselves as makers. They see themselves creating things that other people will use. And you can work with makers. I, I'm, it's harder to work with bankers, I think. When you work with makers, you can say, great, I want you to make things, I want you to feel good about them, but I want you to think about, does the world really need this? Who's asking you for this? Are they designing it with you? How is this coming into being? So for that reason, I do feel like it's a great place 
to invest my time and, and efforts. If it were just about Silicon Valley is the best place to make money, I don't think I'd be wasting my time here. I have one final question uh, because time is up. Um, and it goes to uh, the question of polarization. And I'm and kind of the longer trends, exploding inequality, this uh, technological disruption that we live with. Uh, there's a discussion, I guess, among the left, uh, where some people would say that uh, we need to get to a crisis, a proper crisis, before we can really, you know, change these um, economic policies or uh, distribute wealth or whatever we have to do. And some people um, believe in that incremental change is, is possible. Where are you on that in that debate? Are you an optimist, or do you do you or, and what do you think will happen? It's a great question. Um, I, I've always found the sort of Trotskyite, like, yeah. you know, the, the worse it gets, the better off we are, you yeah. know, to, to be a surprisingly compelling <laughs> argument. <laughs> um, See? And, I, and I, no. I do think we've hit this really intriguing point where it's hard as a thinking person to sort of look at some of the basic structures of the world and say... Yeah, this is fine. This seems to be working. Like, obviously, it's not fine. Obviously, it's not working. So then the question becomes um, what I would say, I, I usually phrase it as institutionalist um, versus insurrectionist. So the institutionalists basically say, look, the institutions of society that we've built up are so important, and if we just re-energize them and really good people participate in them, will get stronger and will be able to move forward. Mm -hmm. And the insurrectionists say, you have to be freaking kidding me. <laughs> have you seen what's going on? Have you seen rising inequality? So now we have finally a name for, for we, you. We, shut up, you. We, we, we've <laughs> got to smash some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. We've got to tear some of the stuff down. So the trick is, I think up until 2016, I would have happily been a, 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 a thoughtful insurrectionist. 2016 comes in, and my, my favorite tweet about this was someone who tweeted out, me in 2016, smash everything, me in 2017. No, not like that, not like that. <laughs> and, and, and so the problem with being an insurrectionist is you can do it from the left or from the right. Yes. And the right, in my country at least, has a very strong insurrectionist bent. Mm -hmm. To be right in the U.S. tends to mean to be anti-government. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm seeing a lot of people mm -hmm. on the left sort of going... Look, the only thing that's going to keep us from nuclear war, to be completely frank, is strong institutions. So I'm, I'm at an impasse. I think a lot of these institutions are broken. I think they need to be radically reformed or rebuilt or replaced with something else. On the other hand, I don't want to break them because they're one of the few things holding it's back... It's too dangerous now. ...the madman <laughs> who's in power. And, and so it's a really interesting challenge. So um, I don't know. I, I think I moved away from Trotsky. I think that my inner <laughs> Trotskyite could not have imagined a Trump presidency. And since we are not manning the barricades and leading the revolution, that suggests to me that actually our tolerance for pain and misrule is much higher than you would have thought. 
And so now my hope is that we have a revolution from the inside and the outside. We have people of good character in the institutions making sure that they hold back the excesses and that we have people working with code and norms and markets to create new institutions from the outside and maybe that's how we get real progressive change. I think that's a perfect ending to this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And, so uh, much. Yeah, thank you. Good luck. That you won't end up like Trotsky with a... With a <laughs> Nice in the back. <laughs> yes, well, that is the other problem with being Trotsky in this, in this particular analogy. So. Well, thank, thank you. That thank was you. Fun. Thank yeah, you. Absolutely.